Dr. Matthew Williams is a consultant oncologist at Imperial College Healthcare Trust. He also leads the Computational Oncology Group at Imperial College London. His academic work focuses on mathematical and computational approaches to clinical problems. He started the Coding for Medics teaching course that taught undergraduate medical students the fundamentals of coding and was featured in the BBC documentary Hospital that narrates the journeys of patients suffering from various medical conditions. We spoke about his work, how he utilises computational technologies for his research, and we discussed advice for medical students looking to improve their computational skills. How did you come to work within the Computational Oncology Research Group? So the background to this is when I was, I mean, in fact, if we, if we go all the way back, um, so when I was at school, I read James Gleick's book on chaos when I was in the lower sixth form. And one of the bits of his book on, on chaos talks about ventricular fibrillation. It talks about ventricular fibrillation as being obviously disorganized heart muscle activity, but with a clear underlying mathematical pattern. And then, of course, I went to med school and we are taught that VF is just disorganized muscle activity. And there's something really interesting there. So if you've ever treated anyone with VF, you will indeed know it is disorganized muscle activity and people die uh, unless you sort things out very quickly. But actually what's interesting is there's a gap between what we think of clinically as being disorganized muscle activity and a mathematical view of the electronic activity, which is not that it is disorganized, it's just organized in a different way. And that and some other reading led me to think about what's sometimes called the unreasonable effectiveness of uh, mathematics. And it's been referred to lots of times. So mathematics has this ridiculous ability to predict and explain large bits of the world. Uh, and there are loads of examples where people have done abstract mathematical theory, which is of no interest and no value. And 30 years later, it turns out to be really useful. Uh, and so I, I then started doing some maths. I started doing some maths with the Open University while I was in my last year at med school. And then when I was a house officer and, and just kind of junior SHO stuff. And uh, that then led to an interest in computational approaches, really, because computers are the only way of doing lots of maths at, at speed. So that then led to a, an interest in computational approaches. And then I did a PhD, uh, which for complicated reasons ended up being in computer science. My PhD was actually nothing to do with mathematics. It was to do with logic and merging two logic-based approaches for decision-making. Um, so I then, I did that in between SHO and registrar training. So I started as a registrar, uh, having done a PhD in, in logic, which is you know, not perhaps entirely useful. Um, but a, along the way of a PhD, as lots of people do, I picked up a whole bunch of other skills. So I picked up, you know, I, I got familiar with writing Python. Uh, I wrote bits of software for my PhD to implement bits of my PhD so I could do the final chapter in Java. And I learned some SQL. And then went, went to work in a big radiotherapy center. And radiotherapy has been computerized for 20, 30 years. Uh, and there was this big database. And every time you treated a patient, stuff got put in the database. And no one really ever took anything out of the database. So I said we should take something out of the database. Uh, and I used that as a basis to write what was at the time uh, the largest ever uh, single case series uh, 
on palliative radiotherapy in the literature. Uh, so it was 1,200 patients, and it was 1,200 patients just because that was a year's worth, and I thought we'd just do a year's worth at a big cancer centre. Um, so uh, that, that's kind of an interesting example where the skills you pick up let you do things that other people haven't really thought of doing. Um, so I did that, and then after I got appointed as a consultant with some academic time, I decided we should really try and run a research group to keep this going. And so uh, I ended up doing this and we chose the name computational oncology because it seemed to hit the intersection of things to do with computing and, and, and cancer, which is obviously my, my clinical interest. What would you say is the main focus of the computational oncology research group? So uh, within the group, really, there are three strands. So one strand is around big data and particularly, obviously, big cancer data. So gliacova is a really good example of that. And if you Google Gliacova and Imperial, there's a short blog post I wrote, I wrote uh, which gives some background to it. So that's about using big cancer data to try and understand what happens to cancer patients at a national level. And that's partly because we want to understand it, but we also then want to say, well, not just what happens, but why does it happen? So which groups of patients do better? And why do they do better? Is it the patients who are treated in large volume centres? Or is it the patients who are treated near home? Or is it the patients who are treated like this? So there's a, both a descriptive element to it, but there's then a modelling element to say, how might, what are the systematic drivers in care that change outcomes so that we might be able to improve outcomes? Because that's the aim, isn't it, to improve outcomes? So one of them is around big cancer data. One of them is around patient-facing technology. So that's around wearables, patient-reported outcome measures, uh, near-patient sensing. And so the best example of that is, for example, the BrainWare trial, where we're taking patients with brain tumors who have treatment as standard, and they wear a wearable device uh, which measures their activity. And you know, we then correlate activity with conventional measures of disease progression, quality of life, fatigue, steroid use, things like that. And that's actually quite important because if you read the news, there is a huge amount of hype around wearables of the future. If you drill down, there is very little data that correlates digital biomarkers with anything that's of any clinical relevance. So, and that's a really important step. So we get all this fascinating data that looks really interesting and looks really attractive. You do have to be clear, you've got to show that that data actually, you know, correlates with something in the real world, with something that matters to patients. And at the moment, for lots of things, that's still missing. So that, I think that's what we're working on. And then the third bit uh, is around reasoning and evidence. Uh, and uh, that was actually where my PhD started. So my PhD was about using logic-based systems to reason with the results of clinical trials. And we did some of that. And then that went cold for a bit and we've picked that back up. So I'm leading a Cochrane network meta-analysis and systematic review into first-line treatment of brain metastasis, which is something I do quite a lot of clinically. So looking at the evidence in detail is a good thing to do anyway. But the group run that is running that, the, which I lead, um, includes all of the usual suspects in terms of doing a systematic review. But we've also explicitly got a couple of computer scientists. So I've got Francesca Tony from Imperial and Tony Hunter, who was my PhD supervisor from UCL. 
And so we explicitly want to do a systematic review and do a computational analysis of the evidence. And we want to do those in parallel. Uh, and we think that might be really, really interesting. And you know, the really nice thing about that is we think that the tools that we've developed might um, might give us a better way of understanding the evidence. And the reason that matters is because understanding the evidence ultimately is about helping clinicians and patients choose better treatments. So that's that's kind of why it why it's important. Which exact machine learning technologies or computational technologies are you using for each one and why? So Gliacova, you don't use machine learning because machine learning is no better than linear regression or well or logistic regression, regression modeling. Uh, for low dimensional data. And there's a very nice systematic review published December 2019 that shows that. So Gliacova, there's no machine learning. It's very interesting. Uh, I do a little bit of consulting work sometimes and people will come to me and say, uh, mainly people from the commercial sector, will come along and say, uh, we want to apply machine learning to this. And when you say, but why, they essentially the answer is, we want to apply machine learning because machine learning sexy, which is a bad argument for machine learning. On the other hand, with some of the brain tumor work, there is genuinely a need for machine learning. So we're doing some work, which will be at the NCRI conference, which is in a uh, couple of weeks time. Uh, and we've just submitted the paper uh, looking at the thickness of temporalis muscle uh, as a prognostic marker in patients with brain tumors. So we know that the thickness of temporalis relates to how much body muscle you've got generally, and we know that how much muscle you've got is probably important in lots of disease. So this measure of, of what's called sarcopenia uh, uses a deep learning, so it uses a unit uh, in order to segment the muscle. So that's kind of a, a nice example of a piece of deep learning. And then I guess in the wearable space, we're just beginning to look at using some deep learning. So I've got someone, uh, he's actually... So he should be an undergraduate computer science student, but because of the problem with the exams in COVID, he's got an unplanned year off. So he came to me looking for a project. So he's uh, doing some work with RNNs and LSTNs, um, looking at activity data. So actually a lot of our work doesn't, doesn't involve deep learning. I think deep learning is an interesting thing, but, but lots of it, you can get quite a long way without fancy without fancy computation if that makes sense have there been any particular highlights throughout your career so far probably one of the papers that i've published that i remain most proud of uh was a paper in annals of oncology in i think 2015 uh where we adapted a, a technique from an australian group um and what you do is you look at people having palliative chemotherapy and you say what's the median survival to the point at what which half of them have died. And then you say, can we relate other points on the survival curve to that? So if you take the median and divide by two, then it turns out that that's pretty much the time point at which 25% of people have died. And if you take the median and times by either two or three, uh, that's the time point at which 75% of people have died, 25% of people are alive. And you know, the maths involved in that is about as simple as you can get. You, you have to take a number and divide by two or multiply by two. Um, 
but actually it's a really nice simple technique um and i i think i wouldn't underestimate the value of those very simple approaches and you know the maths there is as simple as maths can get but it's still useful my next question is what are the most common misconceptions about computational oncology that you've come across probably the biggest misconceptions and these are from my colleagues rather than members of the public uh, is that i do bioinformatics uh, so i remember a long time ago someone encouraged me to phone one of the research councils and have a conversation with them and i think this was obviously a way into getting a grant and I had this conversation where I sort of went, this is what we want to do. And there was just silence at the other end. Uh, and then they went, oh, so you sort of do like what X does. So I, I was on the phone and I Googled X. I sort of went, no, I, I don't do anything like that at all. So lots of people are used to the idea of computers for handling large amounts of genomic data. So nowadays, you know, we can do lots of genomic profiling on tumours, and that's obviously important. But I think the difference is uh, we start with the fact that patients are our fundamental unit of analysis. And you can go down, you can go down to the level of tumour genomes, or you can look at scans, uh, which in a sense, you know, there's a sort of subsets of patient data. Uh, or you can go up. So if you pool enough patients, then of course you get populations. But fundamentally, our level of interest is, is individual patients and individual clinical delivery of care to individual patients, but using computational techniques to try and understand that at scale. Um, and so we're not epidemiologists and we're not bioinformaticians. We sort of sit awkwardly in the middle. Why do you think that it's important for medical students to learn to code? So I think and there are kind of two answers there. So the short answer is uh, it's part of, of the reason we set the course up is I was really upset by seeing people do stuff in Excel horribly, just just awful, dreadful things in Excel when you could have, have written a small piece of code. And in fact, you could even write a macro in Excel. To, to do them much better. So some of that is, is the world is increasingly computational. Uh, all of research is, is almost all research now, particularly in biomedical sciences, is computational to some degree. You collect your data using computers, you store it using computers, you manipulate it using computers. So doing that properly is probably a good idea. And indeed, that's been recognised within universities and the research community. So for example, there's this whole branch called research computing services, which are people who make sure that the computing we use to do research is up to speed and we have data storage and we don't lose the data and things. So that's an important thing. But there is a, there's a slightly wider philosophical thing and there's a, a really good essay that was written a long time ago. And in fact, it was written from a Python background, but it applies across languages. So the essay was called Computer Programming for Everyone. And it was about, it was a funding application. They didn't get funded. But their argument was that uh, being able to write simple software uh, is going to become a key skill uh, globally over the next 20, 30, 40 years. And they, like, they likened it to the growth of universal literacy in the early 1800s in Europe. And their point was, and I think it's a really good one, 
So when we started insisting that all children had to be able to read and write, okay, so you go back to early 1800s, we start saying all children should go to school, all children should learn to read and write. And you could quite legitimately at that point say, but why? What's it going to do? What's the benefit? And you now look at the world and the entire world is mediated through text. People sometimes say, ah, but what about YouTube? That's all video. Well, YouTube video, but the protocol used to transfer it is HTTP, which stands for Hypertext Transfer Protocol. So the world is now mediated through text in a way that was inconceivable when you started the push for universal literacy 200 years ago. And I would argue that the world is going to end up mediated by computers in a way which is currently unconceivable, but you have to teach people universal computing literacy. And part of that is learning to be able to write simple programs. Well, that leads on very well to uh, where this fits in within medical education in the future. Do you see it becoming a regular part of the medical curriculum? I think it, it, it might do. I mean, one of the reasons we introduced the undergraduate course is actually because we felt there was a gap. So in fact, school children are now being taught to code. Uh, and those people who are qualified and haven't learned to code might get away with retiring before it becomes essential. Uh, but we actually felt that there was a group of medical students who were you know, probably likely to be working for the next 40 or 50 years who wouldn't have been taught to code at school, but might still be working when it would be important to be able to. Uh, and so that's kind of almost plugging that gap. I think to some extent, you'll find that uh, it will be taught at school and therefore teaching it at medical school will in fact become redundant. And that would be a good thing in the same way that uh, we don't teach medical students to read and write, do we? But we expect that they've learned it before then. Um, but I think it's going to be a while till we get there. Um, and so in that time, I think there's still definitely a need. So. We've been running the coding for medicine weekend courses for a long time now and they remain very popular. Uh, there's obviously been an issue over COVID because we used to do it all face to face over the weekend. So we're looking at relaunching them, uh, but obviously in a COVID secure way, which will probably involve uh, lots of online stuff. Um, and like all of these things, that's got that's actually got pros and cons. It, it was much easier to keep doing it face to face. But the big advantage of pushing it online is, of course, we can scale it up much more easily. Yeah, the biggest course we ever ran over a weekend had just over 100 uh, attendees. Uh, but we could do an online course with five times that without much difficulty. So it does give us a, a big opportunity. There is a problem about how you deliver that type of education at that scale. So there are now about 7,000, I think 7,200 medical students a year in the UK. And to pick a figure out of thin air, and we can't really justify this, but it's not a bad place to start. We think about 10% of them need to have a reasonable degree of computational knowledge. So actually how you teach 700 a year um, to some degree of, of familiarity, some degree of ability it is a challenge. Um, and it's a challenge I don't yet have an answer for, I've got some ideas, uh, but it's where we'd like to get to. And I'll be clear that that's not something I'm going to do single-handed. It's not something we're going to do at Imperial. It's something that's going to have to happen 
nationally. But for example, it, it is feasible for us to teach more people than we are currently teaching. So we might be able to do a substantial minority of that 700. What would be your advice to students who are trying to get into that domain? To be clear that we set up these courses because I could not recruit clinical fellows and students who had the set of skills I needed. So, you know, whatever the nice outcomes of us running these courses, they were inspired by purely selfish needs. Um, so uh, it is difficult and it's a bit of a vicious circle. So it's definitely worth doing some uh, basic introductory online programming courses. And one of the things that's changed over the last few years is there are many more of those and they're much better than they used to be. Um, and nowadays, actually, they often cover, uh, in fact, some of the really tricky stuff, which is not really hard if you're getting started really difficult. So, for example, installing Python and getting Python running um, is much easier than it used to be. So when we first used to run the weekend course, uh, we had some really, got some really, really good group of TAs. Um, there would always be at least one TA who would spend at least half the morning trying to install Python on someone's computer. There was always someone who was stuck. Last time we ran the course, everyone had it installed. And that's not just, that's not the students trying harder. It's everyone's computer is a bit better. Many more of them have Python installed. So that's a big change. Um, but I think once you've got those basic skills, the problem is the only way to use them, the only way to learn more is to use them. Um, and so, um, Caroline and I wrote a textbook, so uh, we'll do a little plug for the computational medicine uh, textbook, which is available as an ebook, ebook uh, from a well-known medical publisher. If you Google Morton and Williams computational medicine, it should come up. Uh, it's not too expensive, and that provides um, some worked examples. And it's deliberately kind of they're relatively small and they're, they're talked through, but they provide some worked examples for, for people to kind of work their way through. Otherwise, you need to try and find little projects um, and you need to find some practical projects to work on because that's the only thing that will help you make kind of progress. But I appreciate that's really difficult, you know, and I'm happy to host projects, but there aren't, there still aren't that many number, that, that larger number of relatively senior clinicians who have an interest and an, and an ability to understand and use computational approaches, but that will grow over time. Where can listeners connect with you online? Uh, so we have a blog, although rather embarrassing, I checked yesterday, I think it's down at the moment, uh, but it, it should be back up soon. So uh, the obvious thing is we've got a computational medicine blog, which is where we blog about some, if I give a talk, I normally write a blog post along with it. Um, and we'll start blogging about some of the lab work. Um, we uh, have got, for example, the Gliacova project has got a dedicated project blog so that we talk about that. And then probably the other main thing I use is I use Twitter. Uh, so my handle is Matt H. Williams uh, on Twitter. Um, you'll, if you follow me, you get a random selection of computational medicine things with uh, occasional bad jokes uh, thrown in. Um, but I mean, one of the reasons we, we set all of this up is because actually we were keen to begin to build a community. Um, because actually, if you 
have a medical background but are interested in this sort of thing, it's really difficult to build this sort of, of, of community. It's very difficult to know who to go and talk to. So, you know, I have a little group of uh, medical students and junior doctors and occasional nurses and physios and you know, a few other AHPs who have a you know an abnormal interest an abnormal interest in computing and um I, I try and kind of hold them together in a lab and, and form a bit of a community and we have a mailing list and stuff a big thank you to dr matthew williams for his time you can find links to his blog and twitter in the description if you enjoyed this episode please do leave a review on itunes